So thank you, uh, Mike. Thank you, Bant. Uh, if you've got that uh, psalm that we had uh, read uh, earlier open in front of you, that'd be really helpful to me. We're going to spend the next uh, few minutes looking at it. So it's Psalm uh, 19, and you'll find it on page 552 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, page 552, Psalm uh, 19. Uh, may I pray for us as we uh, come to look at it? And what better prayer to pray than one we have already prayed uh, with the psalmist. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing tonight in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you can relate to this experience, but uh, a few years ago, quite a few years ago now actually, I was walking with a couple of friends of mine uh, in the Lake District. It was a beautiful day, uh, wonderful clear skies, Uh, there was just a bit of snow uh, on, the, uh, on the peaks. It really did look beautiful. We'd had a hard morning's climbing and we got to the top of Helvellyn, one of the, uh, sort of the greatest climbs. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's not that hard if you go up the other way, but we did go up quite a difficult way. It was uh, quite hard going. Uh, and we were stood on the top uh, and I was just, I, I, was, I was awestruck. I genuinely was at the beauty of, of what we saw. Uh, and one of my friends who was next to me, who was a Christian, uh, sort of spurted out, how can anyone look at this and not be a Christian? Uh, my other friend is not a Christian. In fact, he's quite a hardcore atheist, and he just said uh, very easily and was completely uh, unmoved by it. And, of course, you know what happened as we were going down? We spent the next uh, two, three hours, or however it longs, going down, uh, debating uh, that and the different positions and so on and so forth. Uh, maybe you've had a similar experience to that. You might not be on Helvellyn, but you've, I don't know, you've seen, been captivated by a beautiful sunset, something like that. This afternoon, we were at Winston Beach with the students, and we saw a, a seal just uh, swimming along on, on the edge of the coast. And it's just those things which make your heart sing. We're moved to praise the God who, as Christians, we believe, created it. And yet at the same time, I'm sure there are many people who have climbed Helvellyn, there are many people who've been to Winston Beach and seen the seals, uh, who have not been moved to praise God. It's an inescapable fact, isn't it? Not all scientists, not all mountaineers are Christians. They're not even theists, necessarily. In fact, quite a lot uh, say that, uh, are quite, uh, uh, quite uh, vocal in the opposite direction. How do we explain this? How do we explain these two very, very different responses. Is it possible to, uh, to see God, to know God in some way through creation? Uh, if it's not, how then do we know him? Is God hidden from us? How on earth are we supposed to reach him? Well, Psalm 19, I think, helps us think through some answers uh, to those very important uh, but quite difficult Questions And I simply have uh, sort of two points for us tonight, and they sort of mirror the two halves of the passage. The first is uh, that God shows himself in his world. If we can have the next slide, Andy, that'd be great. Thank you. God shows himself uh, in his world. Uh, I was reading a bit of C.S. Lewis this week, and he described uh, Psalm 19, this psalm, as uh, the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. It's pretty high praise, isn't it? Especially when you're somebody like C.S. Lewis, Professor of literature. And I think when we read it through, we can start to get a sense of where he's coming from. Uh, it's got an astonishingly broad sweep, hasn't it? Perhaps you picked that up as we, we heard, it, uh, heard it earlier. It starts with the psalmist's reflections on God's world, what he sees. And then suddenly it switches track, uh, tack altogether, 
and it focuses instead on God's word. It is a great psalm. It's, it's one of my personal favourites. But it's not, I think, necessarily the, the easiest psalm to get our heads around. Uh, many people have struggled to see how these two halves relate to each other. Sometimes people have got around that by trying to imply that they were originally two psalms that just kind of got spliced together. And so we shouldn't try and seek any link at all. We should just kind of ignore the whole thing, frankly. Uh, but I don't think that's fair. There is a unity. There is a meaning to it. There is a logic to it. And I think the two halves... Uh, explain uh, one another. So let's uh, dive in and have a look at the first half uh, first, shall we? Uh, We start, don't we, with this very dramatic statement. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Uh, Our translation in front of us doesn't quite capture fully what the psalmist says. Uh, Literally, it it reads uh, something like, are declaring, are proclaiming. Uh, Because the skies are constantly speaking of God's glory. There's not a single day that goes past where they're not praising him, where they're not testifying to what he has done in creation. Creation's role is to bring the creator praise. Psalmist goes on. It's a similar idea. It's picked up in in verse 2. He says, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display Knowledge. It's this, this kind of image of a mountain spring that's constantly pouring forth uh, water uh, from, uh, from underground. At whatever the time of day, whatever it might be, still creation's praise continues. Uh, what the sky by day begins, the sky at night, the starry skies continue. Uh, the world around us, says the psalmist, constantly gushes forth a torrent of praise to God's uh, majesty and splendour. The psalmist goes on. He uh, shifts his focus from the skies, uh, more specifically, uh, to the sun from uh, verse uh, 4 onwards. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that virtually every culture in history uh, has treated the sun as in some way being significant, something uh, that is life-giving and uh, sometimes even worthy of worship. So a number of pagan religions have, uh, have often uh, gone down that direction. I mean, even in our own age, we have a sense of that, don't we? We talk about people being sun worshippers. We mean it jokingly, of course. They go out and uh, you know go to foreign climes to uh, top up their tan, etc., etc. There's kind of a hint of that uh, there, isn't there? Uh, there's a hint of it in, in, in actually many yoga traditions as well. Lots of yoga traditions have this idea of a sun salutation, where you sort of greet the sun, which I guess uh, betrays their uh, their pagan origins, doesn't it? Uh, essentially. But notice how the psalm is very, very different to that. It's not at sun worship. In fact, it's just like the rest of creation. Uh, The sun uh, brings uh, the creator worship. Why? Well, the psalmist says that it's uh, it's the creator who has pitched a tent for the sun, verse 4. He's the one who's given it a place uh, to, uh, to, to be in, a location. Uh, He's the one who set it on its course of rising and setting uh, day by day. Verse 6, it rises at one end of the heavens, it makes its circuit to the other. Uh, That is the work of the creator. The sun points us away from itself and to the creator. Uh, To worship the sun, as the pagans might want us to, is is a real error. The psalmist says that the sun itself calls us to worship the one behind it, who is Yahweh, our creator, God. At every uh, corner, creation cries out uh, the praise of the Creator. 
well, we noted, didn't we, at the start, uh, that the experience of creation, or our individual experience of creation, uh, evokes very different responses in, uh, in different people. Uh, consider these, for example, just as, as two sort of samples. This is the words of Paul Davies, who's a, a physicist, and he has written this. Uh, I cannot believe that our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate, an accident of history, an incidental blip in the great cosmic drama. Our involvement is too intimate. We were meant to be here. I don't know much about uh, Paul Davies, but clearly for his experience of creation has led him to suggest that there's a mind behind it. So I think that's the only uh, conclusion you can draw from uh, his words there. And yet we can contrast his reaction to another scientist. Just to uh, take an example, this is the biologist Stephen Jay Gould uh, speaking, late biologist Stephen Jay Gould. This is what he said. Uh, God's existence is not manifest at all in the products of nature. God's existence is not manifest at all in the products of nature. Two men looking at the created world as they've experienced it, as they've studied it, and yet coming to two very different conclusions. I think the psalmist, and actually the rest of the scriptures, would side with Paul Davies. Uh, The world is not a veil. It's not a veil that hides God's power and majesty from our sight. The natural order, as we see it, tells us that there is a mighty and majestic creator who deserves our worship and obedience. Uh, Traditionally, Christians have called that God's general revelation, this idea that he reveals that in general uh, to uh, humanity and to the world. Uh, There'll be some Christian thinkers, actually, who've disputed that as well. But I think from the scriptures, uh, we have to say that is so. Uh, The Apostle Paul, for example, appeals to this idea when he's witnessing to the Athenians in uh, in Acts chapter 7. Uh, He appeals to to creation. Uh, And then he again does it in uh, in Romans 1, particularly famously, when he appeals to uh, the the knowledge of of creation uh, as uh, as he makes his case against humanity. Uh, And with Paul, I think we can make a further assertion. Uh, If God has revealed himself in his world then there is no excuse not to give him the worship that he deserves. Because to not do so is actually to defy knowledge. Knowledge that every human being possesses, whether we know it actually or not. And if we fail to worship the creator, as creation directs us to, then one day we will be expected to stand before him and to answer for our failure to worship him. God shows himself in his world, says the psalmist. And yet, there's something else. Because the psalmist goes on to tell us that God searches us by his word. Thank you, Andy. God searches us by his word. Uh, The last clause of that psalm, this reflection on the sun, I think leads us into the second half of this psalm. I wonder if you can see it with me. It's the end of uh, verse 6. He says this. Uh, Nothing is hidden from its heat. Uh, He's describing the heat of the sun, of course. That burning heat, the heat that seeks out everything that it manages to come into contact with. It's that burning heat that makes you think that you can never possibly escape from it. 
Now, of course, in the UK, we have a pretty limited experience of that, of course, but in other parts of the world, that's a very real experience. I'm sure the psalmist was speaking from experience, somebody in the Middle East. He knew what it was to, to feel the searching rays of the sun. It's almost like you can't escape from it at any cost at all. That's the experience of, of the psalmist. He, he feels that the searching heat of the sun. And yet instantly in his mind, his mind goes to another experience he's had where he's been searched. And it's the experience of God's word, Torah, his, his, God's revealed uh, truth. And this is where he moves uh, into for the rest uh, of the psalm. Gives us a description of it, doesn't he? A manifold description of it. The law of the Lord is perfect, able to bring life to the soul. It's utterly trustworthy. It's able to grant wisdom. It's upright. It's pure. It's totally unblemished. There's nothing that can match God's word for its power and its purity. As a former uh, British uh, Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, who was speaking at a, at a meeting, and he, he commented this, uh, that the Bible is like high explosive. <laughs> and many of us will probably have had that experience. Uh, the, the, there's something uniquely powerful to the word of God when it comes to bearing an individual's life. That's the experience of the psalmist. It's been the experience of me and my life. I guess many of you will probably uh, know that experience as well. And we can see that here, can't we, for the psalmist. He sort of tells us what, what, this, what the word of God does. Uh, it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It gives joy to the heart. It gives light to the eyes. It brings a delight and a, and a satisfaction that goes completely unmatched, even by the greatest wealth or the sweetest, tastiest uh, foods, verse uh, 10. And the psalmist tells us that when we obey uh, God's word, we will have this experience, verse 11. Uh, By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. We're warned of danger. We're warned of the wrong path to follow. And when keeping them is great reward. Uh, We grow. It's not material uh, reward so much as spiritual reward. Uh, growing more uh, like God and more in our love for him. Maybe we can compare it to, uh, to uh, two lovers writing to one another. And as they exchange more and more letters, they find out more about each other and they, uh, they, they read more of what the other has written. Uh, they grow in their love uh, for one another. As we encounter God in his word, that's our experience too. We love him more and more as we see him and as he captures Uh, our hearts and as he changes us. But just as the heat of the sun brings joy, brings life, uh, so too the psalmist says there's a sharp side to God's word. It makes us uncomfortable as it searches us. Verses 12 and 13, we've already uh, looked at this in our, uh, our confession. Who can discern his error? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. That's the psalmist's experience, isn't it? As the word of God searches uh, his heart, he becomes all too aware that there are parts of his life that really cannot bear its scrutiny. 
uh, just recently I was reading uh, in a newspaper the experience that a number of uh, TV uh, kind of companies are having. Uh, with everyone changing to high-definition television, they've had to change lots of the sets and upgrade them on lots of kind of TV shows because they've realised that what they could get away with on kind of rubbish old television doesn't work when everyone's got high definition. You see all the blemishes. You see that it's just kind of plywood and not really uh, the real deal. It doesn't bear up to the scrutiny of the lights and the cameras. And in some sense, it's like that with God's word. When God's word shines on us, it scrutinizes us. We become all too aware that we don't really match up to what it expected, what's expected of us. And the psalmist has this response, doesn't he? He cries out to God for forgiveness. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. He asks for forgiveness, even for those sins of which he's not aware of, because he knows the searching power of God's word to bring to light all the areas of his life. It's a bit like the prophet Isaiah, isn't he? When confronted with the burning holiness of God. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. What's the right response to the searching power of God's word? It's this, isn't it, as the psalmist tells us. It's to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And yet, in fact, the psalmist actually goes further than that, we can see. Because he doesn't just pray that God would declare him innocent, this sort of idea that legally he's declared innocent, but he, he prays that actually it would be a reality in his life. He would make him innocent because he would, uh, he would be kept from, from willful, from deliberate sins. It's this idea of God working actively in his life. May they not rule over him. He longs to be really blameless, not just declared blameless, but for that to be a living reality in his life. And who does he turn to? We're told at the end, aren't we? Uh, He turns to his rock and his redeemer. His rock and his redeemer who can accomplish what the psalmist knows he could never accomplish for himself. He is the one who can make the words of the psalmist's mouth, the meditations of his heart, acceptable in his sight before a holy God. This is revelation, friends, that the world can never give us. It can never match up to this. Yes, the world can show us God to some extent, but the word can show us ourselves. It shines its searching light into our hearts and lives, doesn't it? And it reveals to us with that that dazzling brightness that we want to kind of almost come away from. It, It reveals to us how they compare, how it matches up to the standards that God sets, the standards of the law of the Lord, the perfect law, the statutes of the Lord that are trustworthy, the precepts of the Lord that are right. And when it does that, it actually also shows us God in the clarity that the world can never do. Because it shows us our need of him. And it shows us what he can do. It shows us that he has sent his son Jesus, who has come to be our rock and our redeemer, as the psalmist longed for. Why? Because he died for us. He dealt with uh, the bad stuff, as it were, that the the, uh, light of God's word exposes. And he is our rock because he is a sure foundation for those who trust him, just as we've been singing. He is one whom we can build our life on. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, his work for us and his righteousness, just as we were singing. The world can show us God, 
but the word shows us our sin and it shows us God's son who is our rock and our redeemer. And if we want to know God, we have to seek him in his word. We've got to allow it to do its part, to search us, to show us up our sin and our need of God and to show us our saviour who can sort us out. And when it does do that, we've got to listen to what it tells us and put our trust in him. Just as our gospel reading was saying, Jesus' words, the two men, they both heard the word, and yet only one obeyed. We have to allow God's word to do its work in us. We have to allow God to declare us blameless. Jesus is on basis of Jesus' work. We have to allow him to be our sure rock and our redeemer. Let me close with two responses for us. I guess, broadly speaking, we'll probably fall into two categories tonight. Some of us will be Christians, we'll call ourselves Christians, we'll uh, know something of this searching power of God's word. Maybe we can think back to the time we first experienced that, and we could feel God's word exposing us, but more than that, lovingly showing us Jesus as well, and drawing us to trust in him. Uh, If that's so, uh, is this a daily experience for us? I've been challenged this week about it. Uh, Is this my daily experience? that I'm letting God's word shine its light in all areas of my life. It is the psalmist's experience, the psalmist's prayer, yours uh, this evening. Just this week, I had to go to the dentist uh, for some treatment, and uh, as part of that, the dentist shined, shined, shined a bright light on my, uh, my teeth, and he put it up on a camera on the, uh, on, on the screen, and it was a horrible experience, I can, uh, I can tell you. Uh, it's not easy, is it, to look at that? And it's not easy to let the, the word of God... Uh, shine in our hearts and expose, frankly, the mess that's in our lives. But it has to happen if it's going to lead us to Christ. But it might be tonight that we we wouldn't call ourselves Christians. We wouldn't really call ourselves uh, followers of Jesus. Uh, And if that's you this evening, I want to give you a challenge as well. Will you let God's word search your heart? Will you let it show you who you really are? Maybe you think you know who you are. You're a straight-A student, for example. Uh, You're a high flyer at work. Maybe you think the opposite of that. You actually think you're not really uh, someone who's got much to be proud of. I don't know. But it's only when God's word searches us do we know ourselves uh, in reality. And it's only when uh, God's word searches us that we know how we stand before God. We see our need of him. And we also see the answer that he's provided, the remedy, if you like, We see that he sent his son, who is the fulfillment of what the psalmist longed for. He is our rock, and he is our redeemer, because he dealt with all the stuff in our lives that we would rather was never exposed. God searches us by his word. We started, didn't we, with my two friends, viewing the same sights, the same world, and one of them was drawn to praise, and the other one was not. How has that happened? The answer I think the psalmist gives us is this. Uh, One friend of mine had had his heart searched by God's word, and he'd come to trust in Christ as his rock and his redeemer. May this experience the psalmist. May the prayer of the psalmist be ours uh, this evening. May the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.